The following podcast contains explicit language. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. We could make deals in Russia very easily if we wanted to. I just don't want to because I think that would be a conflict. I have a no conflict of interest provision as president, and that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man now engaged in a presidential rebranding exercise, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I wanted to step a little bit out of the immediate news today for a discussion about a big topic I think we're all going to be talking about as the midterm election approaches, impeachment, or as Donald Trump might put it, hashtag impeachment. Impeachment isn't on the table right now for one big, obvious reason. Without control of the House, Democrats can't even hold a genuine investigation of allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. With a majority, Republicans are just stonewalling everything. But with a gain of just 24 seats, which is not at all outside the norm for a minority party running against an unpopular president, congressional committees would be able to investigate Trump for real. Or they could move immediately to draw up articles of impeachment, just as the House did with Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. There's a strong case for impeaching Donald Trump. Over the past several weeks, I've been emailing back and forth with my friend Noah Feldman of Harvard Law School, where he teaches constitutional law. Noah's a very measured fellow. He thinks like a historian and a legal scholar, not like a partisan Democrat. But he's come to believe, as I have, that the argument for impeaching Trump is fully grounded in historical precedent and in an originalist understanding of what high crimes and misdemeanors actually means. After less than three months in office, Trump has already met the impeachment threshold. There are three broad categories from which the articles of impeachment against Donald Trump might be drawn. Corruption, abuse of power, and the violation of democratic norms. So be warned, today's show is going to be a little longer than usual, because Noah and I want to go into serious detail in this discussion. I'm very pleased to welcome in the studio today Noah Feldman. Now, if I give his full introduction, we're going to be here all morning. But Noah is the Felix Frankfurter Professor at Harvard Law School. He's written a number of books. And he's working on an epic biography, the definitive biography of James Madison. What's it going to be called? It's going to be called The Three Lives of James Madison. Um, I wanted Noah to come in today because we have been having a conversation mostly on email about the question of impeachment. And this is not a hot-headed conversation, but it's a real discussion we've been having about what impeachment means and when would it be appropriate to initiate impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump? Would that be warranted? Yeah. And I think what's made the conversation so interesting for me is that we didn't start with the premise that we don't like the guy and therefore he should be impeached. Instead, we started by asking what can be done realistically where the president can get away with things that ordinary laws and ordinary government activity don't seem to be able to restrain. And there he is getting away with them day in and day out. And at some point in thinking about that, we circled back to the question of 
what's the system in place to review? And I think that's how we landed on the question of impeachment. Right. And there's there's a historical question about when impeachment has been used. There's a constitutional question about what's allowed. But fundamentally, there's a political question about are you going to do this? And it seems to me, looking at the history, and I'm not nearly as versed in it as you are, but essentially there has not been a high degree of consistency about when impeachment has been used. Impeachment has been used when an opposition to a president basically has decided that things are bad enough or something serious enough has has crossed the line. I think that's exactly right. And there are, even within that, two different kinds of impeachment that correspond to the fact that impeachment has two parts. First, the House actually passes articles of impeachment, which is sort of like an indictment. It lists all the things that are wrong with the president, and the House can do investigation and talk about it and figure it out. And then it goes to the Senate for a trial. Now, those two parts mean that you can impeach a president and not convict him. And that goes into the political choice because you could have an impeachment that's actually intended to remove the president from office. That's full-on impeachment. That's what might have happened to Nixon, for example. Or you can have impeachment that's really just intended to supervise, humiliate, and constrain the president. That's sort of what happened to Bill Clinton. And that could happen as soon as you have a Democratic House of Representatives that decides that it's time to go after Donald Trump in a much more serious way than it has done thus far. That's what did happen with Bill Clinton. But do you think the Republicans who uh, began the impeachment proceedings intended not to remove him from office or knew that they wouldn't remove him from office? Well, I think they would have loved to get him out. But I think they realized that they would never have the supermajority that they would need in the Senate actually to remove him. I Mm -hmm. think they realized that that was unrealistic. And they went forward anyway. So you could probably distinguish the the wish, the fantasy of removal from the political reality of knowing you could remove. And that would, of course, be very relevant in a closely divided Senate, even with a slight Democratic majority. You still probably, depending on the circumstances, of course, wouldn't have enough votes to get Trump out of office. You know, we could imagine scenarios where there might be, but if things sort of continue on the present trajectory, I'm not sure we'd get there. On the other hand, I think it is plausible to imagine a Democratic House after the midterm elections deciding to go forward with impeachment anyway. And that's the scenario here. I mean, what we're talking about really would become relevant if and only if Democrats won 20 plus seats and recaptured the House in the midterm election. Because otherwise, I mean, they're not even going to have proper investigations of Donald Trump unless they have a majority and control the committees. I think you're right. As a practical political matter, we could keep on talking about impeachment in the presence of a Republican House, but it's really a theoretical conversation that becomes deeply practical if the midterms go the other way. So let's talk a little bit now about a couple of these key terms, impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors. These are all terms, as I understand it, that come out of English parliamentary tradition, English common law. They have they had meanings back in the day, very different from their common usage. Well, impeachment doesn't really have much other usage. Mm-hmm. But when we say high crimes and misdemeanors, those have other meanings now. But let's talk a little bit about each of those things and what they really mean. So in legal terms, what is impeachment? Well, under our system, under the constitutional system, impeachment is just the only technique we have for removing someone from office without voting against them. You know, we don't have recall elections at the federal level the way a lot of states do. Mm. Maybe we should, but they didn't stick that in the Constitution, probably because the people who were writing the Constitution knew they'd be running for office and didn't really want to be recalled. And so it's sort of the only way you can go after somebody actually in office, unless the person is 
at a medical point where they truly can't can't function in the job, then there's a special constitutional amendment for that. Yeah. So that's what impeachment is. And it does imply two parts. It does imply the idea that you charge somebody with high crimes and misdemeanors, which I guess we'll get to. Yeah. And it also implies that you then try them in a kind of criminal style transaction that isn't necessarily about the commission of crimes, if that makes any sense. And I've always been a little unclear on this, but what kind of legal proceedings can you have against a president other than impeachment? Is it you can only say the president commits something that's just an obvious crime? He, you know, he, he assaults someone physically. Could a prosecutor charge him with that crime when he's in office or could they only charge him with that crime after he had been removed from office by way of impeachment? When it comes to a public crime, a crime that would in some important way have to do with the the official exercise of the job, let's say the president took a bribe, which is is a crime also for the president. The conventional view is that a prosecutor couldn't bring that charge against the president while he or she was still the president, because then the prosecutor could shut down the whole system and could essentially paralyze the presidency and could literally detain the president. So if you could imagine you know, a New York state prosecutor walking into Trump Tower and, you know, taking the president away in handcuffs. That might be the fantasy of a lot of people. That might sound very appealing. But in fact, that person, that prosecutor, that state prosecutor would then have the capacity to shut down the country. Right. They can't do that. On the other hand, when it comes to something performed totally in the president's personal capacity, the question is maybe a little bit closer. The Supreme Court in the Clinton against Jones case said that Paula Jones could bring a lawsuit It was a civil lawsuit, not a criminal lawsuit, but could bring a civil lawsuit against the president while he was in office and that that lawsuit could go forward because it wasn't, when it began, about anything to do with the president's actions in his official capacity. Now, a lot of people think that was a crazy decision. I'm one of them. But that's the law. And given that that's the case, it's not entirely outside the bounds of possibility that we could imagine some kind of a criminal charge going forward against the president for some action in his unofficial capacity. But the most likely response to that is it produces the same problem of the New York prosecutor Mm. who shuts down the country. I think most people would think that the president should, practically speaking, be immune from those laws while he's in office. So if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue, a crime he said he could get away with, maybe not. If he shoots Chuck Schumer on Fifth Avenue, that's impeachment. If he shoots, yeah, exactly. If it's a public, uh, an act in the public domain, then I suppose so, yeah. Right. So... This term from Article 2 of the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors, those terms have very specific meanings. What is your understanding of what a high crime means in constitutional terms? Well, we should start with what it doesn't mean. Because it has the words crimes and misdemeanors in it, which is also the title of a very good Woody Allen movie, there's a kind of instinct that people have that it must be about crimes that are on the books, Mm. violations of statutes. That is exactly what it doesn't mean. And that is because the word high modifies both crimes and misdemeanors. And high crimes and misdemeanors was a technical term that the framers knew from procedures that the British used for impeachment. And high means governmental or in connection with, in our case, the presidency. And high crimes and high misdemeanors are actions performed in an official capacity by a government official that violate the basic principles of the government and that therefore subject you to impeachment. They don't have to be actual crimes that are on the statute books at all. Right. So say, for example, just to be hypothetical, removing a Supreme Court justice from office. If Donald Trump said, I'm firing a Supreme Court justice, that's not a crime. It's not something you can do, but it is a high crime in the sense that it's a crime that could only be committed 
by someone in that official capacity. Exactly. That would be a high crime because it violates the basic principles of the Constitution and because there wouldn't be anyone necessarily there to stop him. That's why it's such a great example that you're using. I mean, if the Supreme Court, if that happened, the Supreme Court would issue a judgment saying, you can't do that, Mr. President. But, you know, other than a few U.S. Marshals, there's nobody with a gun who listens to the Supreme Court justices. The people with the guns listen to the president. So if the president marched in and had a Supreme Court justice removed, you need some way to respond to that. That's a high crime. Yeah. And what's the difference between a crime and misdemeanor? I mean, we think of crime as big and misdemeanor being like, you know, a speeding ticket. But misdemeanor didn't really mean that historically either, did it? It didn't. The distinction is a much later distinction and only has to do with the criminal law. I think the framers were just trying to sound a little bit fancy. And why not use two words uh, when one would have done just fine? Sometimes in the old British sources, they say high crimes. Sometimes they say high misdemeanors. It's not clear they mean anything different. And technically, a misdemeanor means just what it sounds like. It's a something that you did that was bad. Right. And so that's, that's what a high misdemeanor is. It's not is. clear there's any difference. I don't think there is any difference. And I've poured a little bit through the historical sources before the framers. Definitely since the Constitution, there's definitely no difference between the two. I'm just curious, before we get into uh, drafting the articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, <laughs> you've been you've been deep into the into the writings of James Madison. What did Madison, one of the key framers of the Constitution, think about impeachment himself? How did he think it might be used or should be used? Well, we do know a little bit about what he thought because he was actually involved in one of the exchanges at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia where they ended up with the language of high crimes and misdemeanors. And that is that George Mason from Virginia a kind of older guy than Madison and kind of an elder statesman. And Madison was a kind of a young gun by comparison, wanted the provision in the Constitution to say that you could remove the president or other officers from maladministration, which is, if you think about it, tells you something about what high crimes and misdemeanors could extend to. Right. Just doing a lousy job. And Madison responded on the floor of the convention and said, I think maladministration is a little vague. And if we use that, then people will be removed all the time for anything, and the people wouldn't be able to do their jobs in government. So he clearly thought that maladministration was too broad. And then after he made that comment, the convention settled on high crimes and misdemeanors, and he didn't object to that. Right. So I think what Madison thought is that it didn't just mean, I don't like you, Mr. President, and I think there's some drawbacks in your policies. It meant you're committing certain actions, which in historical terms can be understood as violating the core principles of what they would have called Republican government and we would call Democratic government. So I think that's pretty clearly what Madison had in mind. The below 40% approval rating is what lets you proceed politically, but it's not itself a reason for removing somebody. The reason has to be that you've crossed certain lines. Exactly. And when we say it has to be, what we really mean is that if deep in the souls of the people doing the impeaching, they want to fulfill their oath of office and actually follow the Constitution, then they would have to have something beyond the low approval ratings. But there's nobody to check them. I think this is a very important thing to keep in mind when we think about this. There was an attempted impeachment of Justice William O. Douglas in the 1970s. And Gerald Ford, who at the time was in the House of Representatives, this was before he became vice president for 15 minutes and then president for 20 minutes, <laughs> actually said in the House something like this. The definition of impeachment is whatever the people in the House and the Senate think it is. Now, that's true descriptively, right? In the real world, if they define it down, right. there's nothing anybody else can do about it. But that doesn't mean that it's true normatively. That doesn't mean that's what ought to be true. I think if you're acting in good conscience, it has to be something more than just, we don't like the guy and he's not very popular. So he was, Ford was on board for removing Justice Douglas? 
I think Ford tried to play it a little close to the vest, but in the end, most Republicans were actually on board with this. And again, in Douglas's case, well, Douglas was a quirky guy. And not only was he the most left justice, and that was one reason Republicans didn't like him, but he also had all kinds of personal connections to money people that in our contemporary terms would be definitely questionable. So he was very vulnerable uh, on that dimension, not to mention some other personal dimensions. Let's t- so let's talk about what Trump has done that might cross this line that might be the basis for an article of impeachment. Because if this moves, moves forward, Congress draws up articles of impeachment. It's like an indictment. It's numbered. It's, you know, there's one, two, three. And I would think, and I think from, from talking to you, we, we probably agree, number one would be the broad category of corruption. I completely agree with that. And first of all, corruption is absolutely at the core of what high crimes and misdemeanors are because corruption means you're gaining something typically personal, from the fact that you have this government job. So that's an archetype of government wrongdoing. And it's also something that is significant because it can't always be regulated. And that's because, although there's a lot of debate about this among constitutional scholars, it may be that Congress can't pass laws blocking the president from doing certain kinds of things. They could say he can't take a bribe, but if he's designing his business operations in such a way as to get gain at at his hotels or gain in his other businesses from his actions as president, it may be that Congress can't stop that from happening, which is what Trump was talking about when he said- He's exempt from conflict of interest law. Exactly. And, you know, Trump formulated this in this way that's completely wrong. He said, quote, the president can't have a conflict of interest. What might be true is that under the laws that Congress passes, Congress can't hold him responsible for that. But he can have a conflict of interest, and the way to do something about that is actually through impeachment. So I'd say corruption is definitely, say, bucket number one of bad things that the president can do that would get him impeached. And there are all kinds of things that the president has done thus far that already, I think, would reach that reach that level, most likely. Now, law professors like this term emoluments from Article 1, which has, I think, specifically to do with taking something of value from a foreign person of government, which it certainly seems like he and members of his family have been doing. But is emoluments the core of corruption or does it go beyond that? Well, emoluments is definitely part of corruption. But the emolument does have to be from a foreign government. Hmm. I would say corruption goes beyond that. Let's say that someone in the president's family or the president himself does a deal with a private Chinese billionaire who doesn't work for the Chinese government. That, if it Which benefits, his son-in-law, by the way, was on the verge of doing before the deal fell apart last week for them to buy this office tower that on Fifth Avenue that Jared Kushner grotesquely overpaid for in his first Tyro real estate deal. Yeah, and imagine for the sake of argument that it had been the president or a trust of which the president was the beneficiary and in which he hadn't really relinquished control. Under those circumstances, imagine for the sake of argument, it wasn't a foreign government giving him the money, but just a foreign person. And we could show that that had to do with his being the president, which is pretty easy to show, I think, circumstantially. That would be a form of corruption. It wouldn't necessarily be a foreign emolument if the money didn't come from a foreign government, but it would still be grounds for impeachment without any doubt. Well, so Trump opened up this hotel pretty much next to the Trump International Hotel just down the street from the White House. And it's now the place to stay if you are a foreign leader visiting or you're a foreign company or whatever. You have business with the White House, the executive branch. You want to show them you're staying in Trump's hotel. And he is still the beneficiary of the profits from that hotel. Now, 
the pattern of corruption in other countries like Italy under Berlusconi shows that when you run the country and you also have a business, people tend to overpay you for what you sell and undercharge you for what they buy from you. And this is clearly going on. The Trump International Hotel compared to a brand X hotel without the Trump name on it is going to charge more for those rooms. At least if they're good business people, they will. Yeah. yeah. They're doing, and you know, they doubled the membership price at, at Mar-a-Lago. Mar- 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 I mean, why? Because they can, because that's now people want to be in proximity to the president. Is that an impeachable form of corruption? I think it is. And when you drew my attention to the, the Berlusconi comparison and the, and the data, I was kind of blown away by it because as I think you were showing me, it's not as though on one given day, Berlusconi got a payment from one person or another person. But over the course of his time in office, remind, remind me of what the number was. That I think it added up, up to a billion euros, which a, is more than a billion dollars. Yeah. Six, substantial amount that you can gain just by slowly, gradually accruing advantages through your office. People now, paying one to two percent more in ad rates on the TV stations Berlusconi owns. So in any given deal, any given contract, you can't really see it. It's so small. So if it's foreign officials staying in those hotels in order essentially to get money to the president, that looks like a violation of the Emoluments Clause. And it definitely looks like a form of insidious corruption. I mean, an interesting question is, what if it's just ordinary people who want to say they've stayed in a Trump hotel because he's the president? I mean, that's a complex issue because Trump's whole business model is based on the branding. Right. And the brand itself has presumably, at least for the moment, pre-impeachment, increased in value by virtue of his becoming president. So in some way, just by virtue of running those businesses and continuing to be the owner of them or the beneficiary of their ownership while he's in office. And after all, his children are still running the business. It's not like he distanced himself or put himself in a blind trust. Arguably, that is itself a form of public corruption. Whether that's impeachable, I think, would be a debatable question. But I think there's a case to be made, just as you described Berlusconi doing it, that a presidency that's basically run for the profit, the private profit of the president, is a kind of corruption in the deepest sense. I think the founding fathers would have seen that as a form of corruption where the president was gaining financially from the fact that he was president. But it's a tricky question, isn't it? Because presumably the founding fathers were were business people. They were wealthy men and landowners, many of them. And their understanding was not that you had to give up all of your private ownership when you served in public office. They may have had a much higher degree of personal in- integrity, at, at least many of them. So some of them. <laughs> some, some, some of them. But, you know, Donald Trump owns this hotel. He started it before he ran for office. The market price of a room in the hotel is going up because for the reason you say, people want to stay there. They want, they want the little, they want to be connected to the Trump golden touch and they want to say they stayed there. And, you know, just based on availability, he can charge more. Uh, and, it's not I, cer- I certainly think he should divest himself from his entire business and, and remove conflicts of interest. But boy, is that not easy to do? Well, the charging more means something also, because it's, it's a way to quantify in economic terms the gain that the president got from getting elected president. If you look at the price of a room in that hotel with no Trump as president and you compare it to the price with him as president, the difference between their two prices is the kind of it's the bump you got from he got from becoming president. And in some way, then, that could stand in for the degree of public corruption. I think one way he could have avoided this was not to raise prices in the hotels. We might still have the question of foreign officials who stayed there. But I I don't think that the president can't own a business. But the question is, can he benefit in that business from the fact that he's president? Can that be part of his branding? Yeah, I I think that's a close question. I agree with you. It's It's not a simple point at all. 
We've never had a president before that I can think of that got rich being president. We've had a number of presidents who've gotten rich after being president because they were president, including Bill Clinton, who's made a fortune. You know, Barack Obama and his wife just signed a $60 million book deal. Better, because, be, a, better be a heck of a book. Yeah, well, two books, right? So, but uh, yeah. Two I, good books. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that's because he was president. But in office, there was never any question. So this is really unprecedented in a certain way. Someone who who is enriching himself and his family by being president and while, during, be, while being president. Right. During the presidency, I yeah. think, is the is the crucial point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. It's unprecedented. We've never had any, we haven't had a business person of this type in the presidency before. So uh, impeachment article number one is corruption. Number two, would you think there, there's a set of issues you were mentioning around abuse of power? What's in that bucket? Abuse of power is anything the president does that he can only do by virtue of being president that threatens the basic freedoms and capacities of other people and which he can do precisely because he has so much power in the office. So let me take a very concrete example. When the president tweets that somebody, say Barack Obama, has committed at least an impeachable offense and probably also a crime by wiretapping him, wiretapping Donald Trump, he's making an allegation that as president has weight and capacity that it wouldn't have if he were a private actor. And what's more, because he is himself the head of the Department of Justice indirectly and can order the prosecution of anyone, including a former president, he's threatening somebody with the possibility of prosecution. That's something you can only do if you're president. And if you are doing that without evidence, if you're putting somebody potentially in jeopardy of prosecution without evidence and without support for it, and in order to advance your own interests, that's a classic example of an abuse of power. He just did it the other day again. With Susan Rice. With Susan Rice, saying he was asked in an interview, do you think that Susan Rice committed a crime? And he took the bait and said, I think so. Yes, I think she committed a crime. Now, if you or I say we think Susan Rice committed a crime, that might be wrong and it might be nasty, but we're not in a position to call the Department of Justice and say, investigate and charge her with a crime. If I were Susan Rice's friend, I would tell her, go hire a lawyer. Because the president of the United States has said that he thinks you've committed a crime. And so you better be in a defensive posture and start spending the money that it takes to defend yourself. If the president does that kind of thing without any evidence, just on a whim, that is an abuse of power. And it's a perfect example of a kind of abuse of power that's distinctive to the presidency and therefore is and should be an impeachable offense. Now, is part of that defamation, and there's no other way to go after a president for defamation because accusing someone of committing a crime, whether you have the power to go after them or not, is in the category of things that could be slanderous or libelous. I think it's that also. I think defamation is also a a wrong, and for the president to defame somebody in his official capacity, I think is itself, on its own terms, something that could be worthy of impeachment even if the defamation didn't take the form of this person should be convicted of a crime. So, you know, you could say, let's say the president, on the basis of evidence that he has or of no evidence, simply says that some private person is a terrible person who commits some terrible moral wrong that isn't necessarily a crime, is a liar and a cheater and, say, unfaithful to his or her spouse. Say the president says this without evidence. He's defaming that person and the person can't sue him because he's in office. And the president made that statement in the exercise of his official capacities. That too, I think, under the right circumstances, would be the kind of abuse of power that would count as impeachment. It's even worse when it relates to a crime. Mm. Because then what you've got is, you know, the real danger 
of prosecution commencing. In fact, uh, when I was pouring through these these old 16th and 17th century British impeachment charges, one of the ones that I came across was an official of the crown who was impeached for commencing prosecutions and then dropping them. Huh. In other words, a kind of malicious prosecution where you know you don't have the evidence to convict the person, but you're going to put them in a terrible position just by charging them. And this is a version of that, accusing someone of a crime when you are the prosecutor in chief and then doing nothing about it because you don't have the evidence for it is a form of public abuse. But other things that could fall into this category, which Trump hasn't been specifically accused of, but say Nixon committed using the IRS to investigate people for political reasons is an abuse of power, using the intelligence agencies or the FBI to investigate people for political reasons is an abuse of power. Absolutely. Even though in some cases there might be a statute prohibiting this and in some cases not, we could identify it. We would see it as as an abuse of the capacity of the president. The president has enormous power. I mean, I think the thing we have to keep in mind is through the intelligence agencies, through his power to, to prosecute, through the defense establishment, and just through the size of his bully pulpit, the president has enormous capacities to act in ways that would deeply disadvantage many, many of his opponents and enemies. Having an enemies list is itself an abuse of power. I would actually take it a bit further. I think that when the president declares the press to be enemies of the people, he's starting to verge in the direction of this kind of abuse of power, although perhaps it would be better to consider that under the, the third bucket, which is the bucket of, to my mind, subverting democracy itself and but subverting the rule of law. Just before we get that, don't we have to do draw a distinction between president who talks shit, which is what the country democratically elected him, not by a majority, but in yeah. the electoral college, elected him to do, and the abuse of power like prosecuting somebody or threatening, pro actually threatening prosecution, because, you know, the remedy for his talking shit is his being called on it which he is very much on the on the tapping thing, on the Susan Rice thing. He's fiercely fighting back. But, you know, this is the kind of nonsense he's been, this is what he does. I mean, well, and we, you I'm know. Not, I'm not sure this is such a good constitutional distinction, but <laughs> there's talking shit and there's talking shit. Yeah. And one form of talking shit is literally, you know, trash talking your opponents. And that's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but it's not unconstitutional and it's not a violation of, of the president's core function. But the president can talk shit in a way that an ordinary politician can't because of the consequences of what he has to say. So the allegation of criminality, which is a great example, just doesn't fit into that category once you're president. So, you know, running for office, candidate Donald Trump could say to Hillary Clinton, you ought to be in jail. But let's imagine that he's running for re-election and whoever the Democratic nominee is, the president says, I believe that you're guilty of crimes. That could trigger a process of actual investigation of the person. Right. And that means that the exact same statement, the same exact words have a different effect, I would say an unconstitutional effect, because they're said by a person who is in fact the president at the time. So that's, that's where I would draw the line very, very clearly. Also, you know, there is a difference between saying mean things about you, saying you're an idiot, you're ineffective, that you're sad, that you're pathetic. Um, you know, if you're John McCain, that, you know, you finished last in your class at the Naval Academy and then got captured, and saying that somebody is actually actually defaming somebody. And defamation is a condemnation of the person's character based on conduct that's alleged to have occurred. That's a different thing. Yeah, but this line, you know, we've elected a frustrated Fox News host as president, and this is a line that gets crossed on Fox News. And presumably, this is what the country wanted. It's not what I wanted. It's not what you wanted. But we don't want to constrain the fundamental free expression latitude of a president who just happens to be 
crude, offensive, unfair. I mean, we, we can deplore all of those things. But I guess my question is, I, don't not, we want to draw a firm line about what the impeachable offense is versus just what is terrible behavior? That's a really good question, but I'm not completely sure that I would draw that firm line. I think Congress could plausibly think that, say, um, crude language used by the president in attacks on individuals on a regularized basis, um, maybe even cruder than what Donald Trump said when he was running for office, could actually amount to an abuse of power because you know, in a workplace, we we're perfectly happy under our sex harassment laws and saying that enough crudeness can create a hostile workplace. You know, if the president systematically contributed to, let's say, the demeaning of women over a long period of time by public crude public statements about women, I think that could add up to something that I think would genuinely count as a degradation of the office and a degradation of the country, and therefore something that could count as as an abuse of power by the president because of his capacity to, to do that. I mean, look, maybe I'm pushing this a little bit far, but I don't think free speech. I mean, I think here's maybe what's behind what you're saying. Doesn't the president have free speech? Yes. And my answer to that is no. Under impeachment, no one's going to put the president in jail for what he said. But when it comes to removing the president from office, he can't say, well, that was just me exercising my free speech. Free speech says that Congress can't make a law punishing you for speaking. Mm. But it doesn't say that they can't eliminate the president to take the president out, that they can't impeach him for things that he's said. He's not immune from impeachment. I think that's sort of the punchline. The president is never immune from impeachment. And saying that all of your political opponents at one point or another belong in jail does cross that line. It absolutely crosses the line. And yeah, and I think the crucial point is to remember that it's great to have free speech values and we should have free speech values and Trump should never be put in jail for things that he's said. And I would, you know, very strongly defend his free speech. In fact, I did defend his free speech rights repeatedly and, you know, with my nose held during the campaign. But it's not true that he's immune from being impeached. Our third bucket is undermining the rule of law. And that also gets into this whole category of democratic norms and where Trump has has threatened or violated democratic norms. What are you thinking about there? What are What are the potential offenses that constitute an article, could constitute an article of impeachment around the rule of law. Well, let's talk about Russia. Yeah. <laughs> assume for the sake of argument that it could be shown, I'm not saying it has been yet or that it, that it will be, but assume for the sake of argument that it could be shown that the president or people very close to him cooperated with Russia in hacking of the Democrats during the, the election. Now, technically, that's conduct that happened before the election. And so to that extent, the president could make a plausible argument that it shouldn't be considered in his impeachment. Huh, because that seems like the most obvious impeachable offense if you proved that his campaign colluded with the Russians to steal the election. So the election would be illegitimate. So here's how it comes in. I think the way it comes in is if he, while in office, has taken any step of any kind that's positive towards Russia that might not have been taken otherwise, if there's any quid pro quo, if huh. there's any payback, then I think you could say, look, that conduct while president incorporates by reference all of the stuff that happened before the election and incorporates the distortion of the election and therefore falls under the category of undermining democracy. Elections are the most basic component we have of democracy and to corrupt those elections by colluding with uh, foreign power and then give them something back, I think would certainly count. You know, again, 
if you did it while you were in office, if the president did this while he was in office, he would obviously be impeached and be impeachable for that. It's a little trickier with respect to conduct that happened before. Because remember, on our definition, high crimes and misdemeanors are abuses of the office. So if you're not in office, you know, it might be criminal to take action, but it might not be technically impeachable. Now, in the real world, this may not matter. Right. It may be that if the evidence comes out, that'll be good enough for Congress. But I certainly think subverting the election process is a good example of, of subverting democracy. At least we should start there. Right. I mean, I guess with Watergate, those were crimes in office because he was running for re-election. Right. It was the committee to re-elect. It was creep, not, right. not, not keep. <laughs> so this issue didn't come up. But with Trump, well, certainly at the moment, he seems to be um, making some efforts to show that he's not favoring Russia. I mean, he's 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 bombed Syria, and I guess he gave them a heads up to get out of the way. Um, but he does seem to be taking some pains to show that he, at the moment, that he's not Putin's shell. Well, that's smart of him. And maybe he could offer it as some kind of defense if the situation further arises. But I do think that, you know, the corruption of the electoral process would be a classic example of this kind of third bucket of impeachable offense. Mm. I would add with that something that I mentioned before, but which I think maybe fits better here as I, as I think it through. And that is the systematic attack on the press. You know, the press is in the Constitution. The members of the press are not part of the government, but that doesn't mean they don't fulfill the role of a core constitutional function. Calling them the fourth estate is a metaphor, but in an important way, it's also true that the press is essential to the functioning of democracy. The framers knew that, and that's why they gave the press special protection in the constitution. And without them, without a free press, you don't have a functioning democracy. There are no examples in the world of functioning democracies without a free press. So now comes the president and says that the press is are enemies of the people. All of them, systematically, That weakens our capacity to act democratically. And I would add to that that if you look at places where in recent years we've seen democracy eroding, take Turkey as a great example, Mm. one of the ways that that erosion has happened is through subtle, careful, slow undercutting of press freedom. And it's not always by actions that today would be seen as clearly violating the First Amendment. It's a phone call from the president to the owner of a newspaper who calls the editor who says, you know, that columnist is kind of pushing the envelope. Yes. And, you know, you hear about that and you say, well, no one's actually violated a law. It's not clear you could litigate that in the United States under the under the First Amendment. Maybe you could, but probably you couldn't because maybe the phone conversation just said, hey, I really didn't like that article. But that is how you undercut free speech at first. And, you know, I heard about these things in Turkey four or five years ago and I thought to myself, this is bad, but it doesn't yet rise to the level of subverting democracy. And then a few years later, it did. It ends up with no major news organizations that are effectively outside the president's control. I mean, there is in Turkey, you still have some opposition press, but you don't have any independent press that's capable of, of criticizing the president. And I will say one of the most upsetting news stories that I've seen since Trump took office was a Wall Street Journal story that reported on a phone conversation between Jared Kushner and the chairman Jeff of, Zucker of at Time CNN. Warner. Yeah. Um, and which owns CNN. And of course, you know, Time Warner is involved in complex takeover negotiations. And, you know, we don't know exactly what happened in the content of that conversation, but it would be possible to infer situationally that if CNN came up in the conversation, as it appears that it clearly did, then there's an implication. It's an indirect, but an indirect implication. You know, maybe you should get CNN out of this deal. And, you know, the president actually did say openly when he was campaigning that he would oppose this merger and that it had something to do with CNN. Right. So that association was already there during the campaign. So, you know, if you're running a corporation and you need to do something on behalf of your shareholders, 
you might think is a good business decision that you have no choice but to say spin off CNN. But then you raise the question of, well, will CNN survive as its own business? So it's, you know, it's many steps down the road, but it amounts to a tremendous threat to the capacities of a free press. And that's also the kind of thing that comes crucially under the heading, to my mind, of impeachment, because there might be no other legal mechanism to get at it because it's undercutting the rule of law, but it's doing it very, very cleverly. I think people in the press are going to be very queasy about this now. I mean, I, I, I sort of hear your point about the way that attacking the press can become not just a violation of a democratic norm and bad behavior, but actually a serious abuse of power. But going back to this point about the First Amendment, I don't think the press is going to like the idea that a president might be impeached for attacking us. We, we think it's outrageous that he's attacking us, but we always think the remedy is more speech. Well, so here's the thing that I think is misleading all of us around this. You know, I'm a deep believer in the First Amendment. And what that does mean is that instead of the government outlawing speech, the remedy for false or bad speech is more speech. It doesn't always work in the real world, as we know from fake news. But in principle, that's the approach of the First Amendment. And it's right in the sense that nobody should criminalize the president's speech acts. But no one is talking here, or I'm not talking here about criminalizing the president's actions. Right. I'm holding him, talking about holding him accountable and holding him accountable under the rubric of impeachment. And so the, the way I see it is that the real purpose of impeachment at the deepest level is for Congress to express its beliefs about what the right way to be president is with respect to respect for democracy and the rule of law. And that includes, it doesn't have to bend over backwards to say how much he loves the press, but it includes not taking actions that are effectively intended to curtail press freedoms, to frighten the press, especially through corporate pressure, into ceasing to be effective critics. That is how democracy erodes. And, you know, that may make people uncomfortable, but I think it's making them uncomfortable because they're mistakenly taking the free speech paradigm of the First Amendment and applying it to supervision of the president through impeachment. This is not about punishing the president. It's about assuring that the governmental system that respects a free press continues. Just as a last question, Noah, you know, I think one one issue, if, if we get to this point after the midterm election when there are impeachment proceedings, and I don't think it's far-fetched at all. I think it's probably about, well, if the Democrats take the House, I think it's about as likely as not, mm-hmm. maybe more, more than 50-50 if they control the House. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you maintain the sense that impeachment is extraordinary? and a tool that you use ex- in extraordinary circumstances. Because what we've certainly seen around, what we've seen around Supreme Court nominations, where you have this this steady upping of the ante in terms of how politicized the nomination process is and the weapons that are used in that fight, we do not want to get to a point politically where there is impeachment proceedings against every president based on the fact that if an opposition party controls one House of Congress, it can pursue them. Well, first of all, I agree with you. And I think that the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton, which were very much in that vein, um, were pretty problematic, mostly because the the alleged crime, namely perjury, didn't have anything to do with the president's exercise of his office. It yeah. was precisely not a high crime uh, or a high misdemeanor. It was an ordinary crime. So I agree that there's some risk of that. It's worth noting that we've already, to some extent, gone down that road and that that is what happened to Bill Clinton. I have no doubt that if there had been anything of which any point at which the Republicans could have gone after Barack Obama that way, 
they probably they would, have. would have. You know, he had about his character this feature of being purer than anybody else. Some people didn't like that <laughs> about him very much, but it was definitely a feature of his of his character. And his administration, in retrospect, was one of the least corrupt administrations in U.S. history. In fact, I think it, it'd be a challenge in the modern era to think of any uh, administration that was so unplagued by corruption-related scandal. So it's a genuine challenge, is the first thing I'm trying to say. The second is, I don't think that Trump's activities are so ordinary, so boring, so plain vanilla, that going after him would set a precedent for everybody in office being sought for impeachment. We're talking about concrete features. We're talking about concrete enrichment of the president while in office, which has not been the case for other people and is unlikely to be the case for other presidents in the future. We're talking about abuses of power uh, with respect to allegations of crimes that have never been undertaken, to my knowledge, by any president in this way. And if something to do with the Russian allegations is shown, we're also talking about a form of corruption in the democratic process that, with the exception of Richard Nixon, has not been shown of a, of a sitting president. So these are outliers, and I think that's the answer. You have to focus on these cases, because if you don't use the impeachment process now, there is a question of what's the point of having it at all. I've been speaking with Noah Feldman. He's a professor at Harvard Law School and a columnist at Bloomberg View. Noah, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jake. It was really fun. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.